welcome back everybody i'm albert and welcome to another episode of the new improved podcast how was your week how is everybody feeling out there who had a busy one i have another busy one coming up workshops 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 travel 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 but you know what that's why we get paid but yeah sometimes it's a little much isn't it and admit it you know we've all thought about it quitting our jobs you know sometimes we just want to quit and do something else put everything all on red and let it ride but sadly most of us never do that though we fantasize about the what if of pursuing our passion there's likely a voice inside that keeps us from doing it my guest today is the Sean Moen, one of the co-founders of the famous Nine Mile Brewery here in Saskatoon. Sean was a seasoned attorney well on his way to being a partner at his firm. Life was set, except he wanted more, and if you get to know Sean, you realize that he's just a little bit different. Newly single in his early 30s, he walked out on his career to start something fresh and something that gave him purpose. You know, Sean actually shared a pretty good story with me during the day before we actually started recording that I kind of wish he would have recorded, but uh, it was all about how he met his new wife when he was in Vancouver, sort of feeling unsettled. He had only had a few days left before he wanted to come back to Saskatoon to truly start his journey on what he was going to do next after law. And um, he walked into a coffee shop, but what got him to get into that coffee shop was a sign. And uh, it was pretty poignant, he said, and serendipitous that he met his wife inside that coffee shop because the sign on the outside simply said, you're doing exactly what you ought to be doing. So I thought that was pretty neat. Anyways, please enjoy Sean Moen. Exactly. Yeah. How is business so far today? Uh, business so far is um, it's it's good. It's it's full of bumpy roads as you go. We've been in business for about four years, Albert, mm-hmm. and um, it's interesting to think back on that because we've we've been in two locations. One was a very small brewery in uh, Ideas Inc., and the other is our spot on on Twentieth Street, and we so. Not to get too inside baseball, but we end up having two two-year chunks of doing business, and um, just watching those business models kind of progress from startup phase to uh, profitability with and and just kind of the ebbs and flows within those two years chunks. It's, it's just I, I don't know. It always causes me to be a bit reflective when you can break things down like that. So how is business is a very I like relative question. Really, really wide, right? I think Before it's, even I think it's good. Are. I think it's good. But like, let's just start, yeah. you know, to be funny and just not be funny and yeah. actually talk about who you are. Like, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm one of the co-founders of uh, nine mile legacy brewing. Um, I am a Southwest kid from Cabri, Saskatchewan. Uh, folks live down on the farm and uh, I'm a recovering lawyer. I, I practiced law for about, 10 years um, before deciding to take a swing and, and start um, this business with my best friend, Garrett Peterson. So Yeah, and so you and I kind of know each other because we've done a little bit of work together. Yeah. But ultimately, I think grew uh, 
the bond through the fact that we're Southwest. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of a telepathic Southwest connection. And anytime I hear about somebody who's near Subcurrent or yeah. the area that I grew up in, you always have a little bit more sentimental value to, and just a little bit uh, more attention on you because yeah. you'll always know that we come from kind of the same fabric of Southwest. Good stock. Fashion. Good stock. It's been really neat to see home through um, somebody else's eyes. So my wife is from Vancouver. And I always used to think of Cabri as kind of this middle of nowhere kind of place. And I think I'm probably right to mm-hmm. a large degree. But when Dean first saw it, and this is a gal who's like used to the uh, mountains and the ocean, she was struck by how beautiful it is down there. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and, and I just, it gave me a bit of pause to just kind of sit back and, and think about the beauty in these wide spaces that we have that maybe we're, take- we're a little too self-deprecating, I think, sometimes in this province. That we This really is... It, re- it really is uh, a gorgeous, gorgeous part of the world mm-hmm. down there. Yeah, That's awesome. Yeah. And plus, if you don't like people, um, you can have some solitude. That's, that's good, too. But now you're in Saskatoon, and yeah. obviously people know you as kind of the face. You and Garrett yep. are the face of what we call Nine Mile Nine Brewery, Mile Legacy, yeah. Which is, it's, so you call it Nine Mile Legacy? Nine Mile Legacy, yeah. And I often uh, will correct uh, people, um, staffies, if they're writing stuff. The legacy is as important to the nine mile. So uh, we tripped over the concept of who we are as a business when we were um, doing all of the sexy stuff like like uh, logo design and business plan writing and all of that. And a lot of other different names that I'm not going to go into. Um, but we, what we realized is that the, the one thing that really defined us is um, the fact that we weren't really doing anything new. We uh, Our farms are located nine miles apart down in the Cabri Abbey area. And every generation of Mullins and Petersons pretty well um, have worked together, well, whether it's uh, just working together on the farm or what Garrett and I are doing right now. Always in agriculture, too, to an extent. We're an ag value business in a lot of right, ways. Yeah. Um, but the legacy piece, you, you don't just work together by accident over the course of several generations. So one one um, one saying that we have at, at uh, the brewery is... is um, in this province, we're brought together by circumstance, but we remain together by choice. And the reason you choose to keep associating with someone is that they approach things in the same way. They approach their community in the same way. They have the same values. And so that's the legacy that we're, we're carrying on. Um, our, uh, you know, our generations that came before us um, laid really good foundation for, to make us who we are as people. And we want to perpetuate that through our operation of the brewery and with our staff. And, right. And it's so it's not nine mile legacy or nine ML for short. It's kind of what I, what nine I ML. Yeah. Which people tease me and say it's nine, nine, nine milliliter. Yeah. That's all so. you need to get drunk. Yeah. For yeah. Side. For some of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. no, that's super profound yeah. and really good, especially coming from the world of branding. I always like to hear the backstory and yeah. I, I always say behind every good brand, there is always a really good story. And it's not necessarily, you know, the nine miles between your homestead. Uh, it, like, it, it could be whatever. But it's yeah. almost the personal journey. Yeah. And that's, I think, the reason I was really interested in talking to you. Because I know, you know, your beer. And obviously, as a person who doesn't drink any alcohol, yeah. I still have this affinity for your brand. You've been a good, yeah, you've been a good supporter despite the fact that, <laughs> that you don't I've drink never beer. Tried it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but uh, the one thing that always stuck from the minute that we met was the thing that you're from Cabri, but also... That you were a full-on practicing lawyer yeah. that had really the a career paved out for you. Yeah, it, it would uh, it would have been a maybe it will be at some point again, but hopefully not because that means the brewery has failed um, <laughs> or you retired or, or, or have retired. Yeah, <laughs> um, 
yeah, it would have been a pretty uh, stable and um, predictable life and comfortable life. And that's what I was so yeah. interested is about is, okay, everybody talks about doing something like this. Like everybody's just stared into their screen yeah. for more than five minutes without touching the keyboard and looking at the, the words and thought, is this what I'm supposed to do for the rest yeah. of my life? Yeah. And you, it's funny when you... Just like you, you finished university, you got a job, and you kind of climb the, the ladder a bit. And then you get to a certain point where you're like, I could now move anywhere and be comfortable, and there's not a, a pressure for me to be able to be marketable to get a new job. You're there. And once you get to that point, I think everybody gets to this point in their career where they start questioning, should I be doing this? And Do you think that's just human nature? Like, do you think that's just ingrained? Or, or what, what's your, what well, are your thoughts on Well, think about a pro golfer. Yeah. Like, you work your whole life to get to a certain point, and then all of a sudden you're a pro, and the, the rest of your life's kind of semi-predictable outside of just, you know, winning a major championship. You're still going to be bored with the game yeah. of golf, which most of us consider, like, a pastime. And you have to imagine that they've... Then you start on the pills and the prostitutes. <laughs> exactly. And, yeah. and then you get chased down yeah. by your wife with the three that's, that's right. As, so. as the old saying goes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true, though. I think that uh, humans are very complex and some people are built to do the same thing over and over. And that's what I always wondered. Like, you ever think about a guy who just operates forklift or does kind of the same kind of warehouse job for the rest of their life? You wonder... They're built to do that. They're I've, I've often been envious of people like that, to be honest with you. And, and I, I think I felt that way in my practice as well, where, you know, I, I got to the point at various stops and I did, I did a few different things. I, I was at two different law firms in the city. One, I was a civil litigator primarily, and the other, I was a corporate commercial lawyer. So the two opposite ends of the spectrum. And in between those firms, I was a crown prosecutor. Wow. I don't think I was that good necessarily at any of it. I was decent, and, and I, I got to the point where I had a decent handle on things, and I could, um, I could, I could handle myself reasonably well. But I wasn't an expert at all. I, I just kind of got bored before I became an expert in a way, and then looked for something new. Right. So I, I wish that I, I honestly do wish that I could have at any of those. They were all great jobs with great people. Um, I wish that I would have been able to be satisfied. I think. Mm-hmm. in some of the roteness that you do in, in a job like that. And because then you get really good and you're comfortable and happy. So but 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago, our company also was partnered and owned a print shop. Mm-hmm. And every six months, maybe they would call everybody down because there's a massive print job that everybody had to go and collate and staple and fold. So for like 30,000 <laughs> things. And it was like seven hours of it. And me, CEO included, and the other founders were, like, sweet. It was almost like a nice break to go down there and just staple and just look into the abyss and just keep stapling and not have to worry about reading anything, getting up to speed on what's going on in the Internet. But then after the eighth hour, you're like... Okay, like I can can't, never can't do, do this. this every week. Yeah, yeah I, it's interesting. We've had some turnover in the brewery recently. Um, with the happy result, like I used to, I used to brew. I, I do a lot of our um, commercial and finance and risk side and strategy side of Nine Mile. Now I sit mm-hmm. at a desk a lot. Unfortunately, I used to brew um, back when we were planning the business. And um, so as a result, uh, just of having some opportunities in the brewery, I'm washing kegs every now and then. Like every second week, yeah. I wash kegs, and I, I get to see this massive pile of kegs go from dirty to a pile of kegs that's clean Mm 
Mm-hmm. And it's really gratifying. Yeah. <laughs> I was at mopping yeah. for me when uh, we had this old floor at Dairy Queen. And everybody would be sweeping, and they'd everybody want to sweep. I'm like, no way, man! Like, it's like that uh, Reddit channel, power washing porn. Mm-hmm. Whenever they do power washing, it's like mopping for me with this brown floor. Like, it made it like glossy <laughs> brown at the end, and I'm like, yeah, this is exactly what I yeah. want to do. Well, you see progress. You right? see and progress. I, th- I think a, on progress. a lot of the intangible stuff that people do, uh, you just you don't you don't see that progress as much, and so sure. you start to have these existential crises of. So yeah, let's uh, talk about that, like spiritually and mentally. Yeah. Where were you at the point where you know you decided that you needed to leave or you needed to make a change? And what was it like? Was it months building up? We were talking about breakups earlier. Yeah, like yeah. You kind of know that maybe two years in advance before it actually happens. Yeah. Was it kind of like the minute you started, or was it? Well, I, I actually I, I think this. It was a long time coming. I, I, um, I mean, everything is pretty easy to rationalize post facto, right? But Garrett and I, we homebrewed together for about a decade, and we were, you know, brewing at uh, each other's places. And and uh, from the from the moment we started brewing, we started brainstorming what we would call our brewery, kind of a yeah, you know, two buddies having fun and and thinking romantically about about these sorts of businesses. But he was an engineer as well. He was, he, he was an engineering tech. He was managing the lab at Golder Associates until. Right. So and you I guys was, had totally normal careers. Just yeah, hobby yeah. brewing. Yeah, that's right. We were hobby brewing. We were um, enjoying drinking, as many home brewers do, thinking, oh, I'm actually decent at this. I could probably sell beer. Everybody a lot more to selling beer than making beer, you know, in a lot of ways. And there's yeah. not a lot more to making beer than home brewing beer. It's just like being a band. It's there's more than just being a good instrumentalist. Yeah, to actually be a good band. Yeah, yeah. There's a few th- a few things. <laughs> just a few steps. A few things. So, but I but I start to think about my career, and I I, I remember I do. This is legit. Um, in my first couple of years of practice, talking with other buddies about my desire to start a brewery, it, it all seems a little hokey and post facto rationalization, but that did happen. And um, so, at the first firm, I, I then uh, went over to the Crown, and I was a, I was a prosecutor for a bit. And that my my other interest when I was in law was in um, the role of the state and and criminal law. I spent a very brief cup of coffee as a summer student with the RCMP at one point, which was kind of cool. Um, I kind of always wanted to do that never really took a swing at it. So Crown Prosecutor was a way I could yeah. access that. Yeah, that's out of the law. Really challenging to practice. You end up dealing with a lot of tragedy. And I was not good at unpacking it. I unpacked it in really um, unhealthy ways, you know, drinking. And and uh, so ironically, you know, drank a lot of craft beer to deal with the stress of being a Crown Prosecutor and developed a real love Sounds for like it. Sounds like a promotion. Yeah. Promo for. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's some, it's something. Um, and so anyway, kind of midway through that part of my career, I I went out and did a master's in Toronto and I remember being surrounded by great beer in Toronto. Um, it was just getting going. My local, uh, my local bar for people that are fans of the Toronto beer scene was Bar Volo when it was in its original location, just off of Young street. can we swear on this podcast? Yeah, it's a fucking awesome <laughs> bar. They had uh, they had a lot of local craft Ontario craft beer, which um, was was kind of a it was really nascent at that time, uh, and they were they were doing Cascale, so it was just it really reminded me of all the stuff I really loved about really high quality beer. And I remember my folks came out to visit me at one point when I was when I was doing this degree. I had a lot of real crisis points. Um, I don't know if any if you've done a grad degree or not, yep. but it's a massive project essentially and it's a really solitary project and so you're trying to get your head around this this what starts as a very vast area of knowledge to a very specific point 
and you go down the rabbit hole and there's a lot of like crisis and self-doubt and self-confidence issues. I, I'm pretty sure, I, I mean, I never went to a doctor stupidly, but I'm pretty sure I was depressed for part of it. Try really questioning um, kind of what I was doing, investing in a career that I wasn't finding a lot of satisfaction from. Anyway, bit of a bit of a tangential <laughs> Uh, I was I was at a weird point where I was questioning a lot about my life and who I was, and and um, my folks came up to visit me, and I was expressing some of this stuff, and they and they said, well, what would you want to do? And I said, well, really, all I'm all I'm really passionate about is this. And we were having a beer at the time, and I pointed to the beer. Yeah. And so I then came back um, to uh, Saskatchewan, worked for, as a crown for a bit, ended up taking a job with a commercial law firm uh, in town, MLT. I ended up doing mergers and acquisitions and, and just started to get a really good understanding of how people were structuring businesses and how some of the, what, what some of the issues were um, as, as you grow these things um, uh, were and just got to the point in my career where it was either continue down the path, become a partner or jump through the window while it was open. And for better or worse, Garrett and I started this brewery. I probably wouldn't start it today. Um, I'm I've got a uh, young boy at home. I've got a wife. I uh, I have some of the things that that I didn't have back then that kind of hook you and make you crave some stability. Yeah, and we're not crave it. I sh- that you need it. Yeah, and and, and so it's interesting when you when you uh, we're talking a little bit about how people. We'll look at decisions to start a business like this with some envy because early on when I started this, I was doing a few speaking things and people would, would, uh, ask, well, should I do it? That was a really common question. Well, should, should I take a jump? And I said, well, not necessarily. I wouldn't recommend it necessarily. And people would be a little surprised by that, but maybe this person that's a bit sour grapey or whatever. Yeah. But if you've got a family at home and you've got a mortgage to pay and you've got all of these people that are relying on you, why the hell would you? Yeah. At the end, it's so self-indulgent. And so I think about this these days as, as Pierce is growing and I, it was my son Pierce. Um, this, this is a very self-indulgent pursuit. And if I can't make it so that it is self-sufficient and it is, um, it is financially stable, then I'm shortchanging this kid. And so as an entrepreneur, I think you, these are healthy questions to ask yourself because you just get better at it. Yeah. You don't want to be too romantic and you start losing your way. It's not, it's not the two buddies. And unfortunately in a lot of ways, it's not the two buddies that are making beer in their garage anymore. We've had to figure out how to run an organization. So that is funny that you say that in three years ago, or if if it was, if you were here, if it was three years now, yeah. you probably wouldn't have done it. So if you would be able to look three years ago before you started this at where you are today with the business, would you think that was a good decision? Or well, would be like, I told you earlier today, I'm, I think I'm playing with house money because I've got such a wonderful situation at home. And we, I didn't think that I would, I've, uh, I've been married before. I didn't think I would get married again. I didn't think I'd have a family. Yeah. Um, so it was not on my radar. So you're in a different least. position and just in life yeah, general. Yeah. And, and, and it's not to say that I would, what I would walk away from nine mile. Not, not at all. I, I think we're, we are at the point where we can take a next big step forward. Mm-hmm. as an organization. So you see a lot of potential. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Big potential. And I think that we've also performed. So th- those, those two things, um, it just means that I have to be better as a leader and I have to be better from a, um, strategic perspective to make sure that I am not shortchanging my family mm-hmm. there. And not only financially, I mean, money's only part of the equation. You can get by, as I've found out the last four years, you can get by on not much money. Mm-hmm. But it's the time and the energy and um, your sanity. Yeah. yeah, And your sanity, for sure. Your mental health. You know, you you need to make sure that you're healthy because people are relying on you to be healthy and to be present. And I want to be present and healthy for them, too. 
Yeah. yeah. And that's interesting that you think that you did you say that you you're pacing what your projections were like oh i don't think so i think that um we if i look it depends on what projections well, how's, that for, how's that for a lawyer response <laughs> it depends uh well yeah back when we back when we opened when we wrote our initial business plan people will if they're familiar with our brewery they'll probably laugh at me right now we initially planned to release two beer one pale ale and one amber and that's how we were going to build this business Mm-hmm. Um, we've brewed 60 beer in the last four years, <laughs> you know, we, and I think where we're, we're known in the community is, um, we're known for variety. Now there are, now there are breweries and I would probably think of them as third wave breweries in the evolution of the Saskatchewan craft market that are being a bit edgier with some of the ingredients. But at the time when we started, we were really pushing the envelope and trying you a lot of different edgy things. Guys, yeah. We were the edgy guys. Yeah. And I, uh, part of that was because we started on a, on a hundred liter brew house which is exceptionally small yeah from a brewing perspective was that considered nano yeah i think we are still nano we're we're okay. about uh, 600 liters now and 700 is seven hectoliters we, we talk in hectoliters as brewers um seven hectoliters is kind of the cutoff for nano i'd say that the the place on 20th street is still a nano brewery and it will always be a nano brewery we'll so would you say all the other ones like shelter and high key are all still nanos no, they, their brew house capacities. Well, Shelter is for sure. Yeah, um, yeah, they, yeah. Stewart's got a nice little brewery, not not that much bigger than our initial startup. Um, and High Key, I, I'm not sure how big Madeline's brewery is. I think it's about 15 hectoliters. Okay, but they're equipped for size. So this is um, you're going to have to continue to keep me on. Like I am a rambler, um, but uh, anyway, it, you asked if we're hitting our projections. I think those projections were built for a very different brewery in the early days right. because the Nano was our whole strategy with the Nano was just make it financially self sufficient. Right. We just didn't want to lose money. It was a way for us to prove the concept and get to our current location. Right. It turns out it made money. And in we opened up in April of 2015, and we were profitable by November. Wow. And so it just started to tell us, okay, we need to double down and raise money and get to the next step. And so with this location, I, I think we've underperformed where our projections were. Okay. Um, I don't. The tap room has not been what we thought it was going to be, and I think that part of it was a little bit of guessing in the dark. Um, part of it was, I think our place, and I really like our place, um, but it is a it is a casual place to meet with people as opposed to a loud place or a very busy place. It right. can be busy and it's very fun when it's busy, but generally speaking, people are having business meetings or they're bringing their families in yeah. or um, they're, it's a great date place. Uh, and I think that it's kind of a stop along. Yeah. And, and, and that's intentional. That's, that's always what we've seen ourselves. So you don't have a full menu or anything. No, no, it's a, we call it a compliance menu. Yeah. yeah it's, <laughs> we have to have a menu to serve beer and that's what we have, but you have some looser cheese that you can cut. up. That's, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. We've got a, yeah, we've got a jar of pickled eggs, literally a jar of pickled eggs in the back. So, um, but anyway, I, I think what we've, where we've outperformed where we thought, um, I, I think we've created a business that's very stable mm-hmm. and I, I'm not sure if I totally understood what that would have meant four years ago. So were you yeah. ever close to not doing it? Where is there a point where you're like, oh, maybe I should just, I, I think we hit these points periodically. I don't think there was ever a point. We've always looked at it. Now it's more complex because we have we own our property and we've got a number of stakeholders that we answer to, a number of employees that we answer to. But even when you started, you thought about yeah, well, folding. in life, in anything you do, yeah. there's always off ramps on the highway. It's doubt, yeah, yeah, and, and you and you have to make a decision as you're driving whether to stay on the highway or to go on the off ramp. And in the dark days, if you see a storm coming up ahead, you might be wise to take an off ramp. Yeah. Now, there's certain benchmarks that you hit where it becomes much tougher, but 
Um, or you're going too fast and we, it's too hard to yeah. <laughs> go or off on Or you're tired, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I'd say we've, we've, there hasn't been one single point where we've considered, should we do this? But when you're brings back to that yeah, point, yeah. when you try it, when you actually said, okay, I'm, wor- I'm working at the law firm, I'm deciding whether to quit. And I'm actually going to walk in and give my notice. Like, was that a, a kind of an emotional day? Was it kind of a, a oh, it was a happy day and, and, no, and no slag on my former firm, but it was a happy day because I, I've often thought that the thing I would have been most scared of is not taking a swing at this. Right. And so if I had, if I didn't give notice that day I would have it would have continued to not me it had not at me for about 10 years yeah you know this wasn't uh I think it probably was perceived in some respects as a guy who um is just having a bit of an early midlife crisis and wants to do something different and made a decision on a whim well how old are you when you did that I was it was in 2013 I quit so I was 31 yeah 31 and you're probably practicing for six seven years I was yeah nine years nine ten years yeah 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 and and that's that was enough for you yeah yeah, I, I tried enough different things in the profession to realize that um, practicing as a lawyer was just challenging. I, I've never been great at conflict. I, I just don't like it. And I've never been great at unpacking both conflict and tragedy. And so uh, when I was a courtroom lawyer, um, it was very exciting. But you, you deal with, like when I was a crown, I was dealing with homicides and sexual assaults. And, yeah. um, and that was very tough for me to deal with at night. And uh a commercial lawyer, actually, I had the most fun in practice mm-hmm. doing commercial stuff, but it's really long hours and it's um, mm-hmm. you're, you're dealing with other people's problems again. You're trying to figure them out. So between you yeah. and uh, Garrett, who yeah. is more pushing the other person to pick up and leave? I wish he was in here because um, yeah, I'd, yeah. I'd be interested to know what his maybe you should ask him that at some point. But I, th- I think probably me. I quit first. I quit my job first. Okay. I quit in September of 2013. He quit Golder in March of 2014. And at this point, you never even sold your beer. No. It was just solely, we thought it was good. Did you yeah, win anything to no, tell you that you No, we've, we've, we've notoriously, like, uh, we, we used to enter homebrew competitions a lot. And I think probably some of the craft beer community may shake their heads at us. But we entered some contests throughout the years, and we would, like, continually be, we'd continually graduate with distinction. And wouldn't win a medal, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And and so like it was, we had family members and friends that said our beer is really good. We thought our beer was good based on other stuff that we drank, and we really wanted to give it a try. But we didn't have that like objective third party value. A lot of other brewers will will make. Yeah, imagine the guy who who kicked your ass in all those competitions. The, the hobby yeah. brewery. Well, they crow about it for sure. I mean, and, like, and some of them are now like professional brewers. Oh, okay. And and so yeah, so they'll make some hay on it. And we, and we'll we've entered a we've only entered one competition um, as a professional brewery, mm-hmm. and we're and this year we're going to enter uh, more beer because I do think our do beer stands up with some of the best. Don't win? Just money and beer. But and so reputation wise, if you don't no, place. It we've always if you don't place like as an example, we entered we sent beer down to the World Beer Cup and we made it to uh, the penultimate round. Um, and there are thousands of entries from all around the world mm. so that your beer is pretty good if you're making it to that okay. spot, right? Yeah. If it was a, uh, if it was a competition within Saskatoon, there'd be a little bit more reputation on the line because there's only a few of us, right? Yeah, so so I'd hate to lose to the people in, in town, you know. Yeah. And, uh, but when you're dealing with these massive competitions, it's, there's nothing much to lose. Well, the reason we didn't enter the competitions when we were a young business is we didn't have enough beer. Mm-hmm. We were we were only brewing 100 liters at a time. We couldn't spare a few bottles. Everything had to be sold. In, in those days, Garrett and I didn't take any free beer from the brewery. You just did you 
We Pay bought it. it. You bought it. Yeah. Because we needed to make sure that we could keep the lights on. Oh, okay. And so this stupid practice um, carried on into the next space where we've got a lot more beer. We had a, a, an influx of new staff and our policy, like our, one of the benefits at working at Nine Mile, I'm going to end up getting a bunch of resumes after this podcast series, but <laughs> is one liter of beer a week because we want people to try the new beer that are coming out and that right. sort of thing. Garrett and I never participated in that. We never took free beer. And until this year, when I, we looked at each other and we're like, this is really stupid. So if you just want to just <laughs> get a beer on tap. I would usually pay for it, yeah. Full price? Uh, no, we'd have a staff discount, but <laughs> it's only a 20% discount. Hey, lead by example, right? Well, it's part of the analysis, yeah. but, I, but I think it was a, uh, a holdover from the days where we just didn't have enough beer. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. I remember one thing you told me a long time ago is that it's surprisingly easy to sell beer. Yeah, I think I think people I think especially well-made beer, um, I, and I and I yeah I guess maybe two comments on that. Uh, well-made beer is easy to sell because people drink it in good times and bad times. Yeah. If it's bad times, it's um, people still want to treat themselves, and it's a hell of a lot cheaper than a fancy bottle of wine or a bottle of scotch. Yeah, so they're going to get a good IPA. Um, the other point I would make with that is I think there is some obligation. A moral obligation on the part of a good brewery to continue to put out good stuff and not just sell whatever they make. Mm-hmm. In the in the nano brewery, we had no beer. Um, we were brewing eight times a week and um, four double brews a week, and uh, there were batches that we dumped because it didn't meet it, the standard. It didn't meet the standard. Yeah. So that's my next question: was is it hard to make a bad beer, or is it hard to make a good beer? It's. I think it's hard to make a good beer. Um, if you're making bad beer, you're not clean. And everybody's had beer. Is that what it is? Yeah, primarily. I mean, I, I think there's there's two variables, really. Recipe formulation is what it is. You can have unbalanced beer, but it, in my view, an unbalanced beer isn't necessarily a bad beer it's, or a flawed beer. It meets beer. a different palate. Yeah, it meets a different palate, or it may just be a little bit like it's like cheeseburgers. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, you can have an okay cheeseburger. Yeah. And maybe it's not, maybe it's a little too overcooked, or maybe the cheese isn't right, or whatever it is. But, but you can still eat it. It's still a cheeseburger. And it's still enjoyable. It's when the cheeseburgers rancid yeah. you know or or the cheeseburger is um that's a bad beer it's a bad beer so so the two things that make a bad beer in my view poor sanitation practice it's all it's all really in in the microbial activity that's happening so you haven't sanitized well enough and there's something living in that fermenter that you're not expecting and it's going to act inappropriately mm. um the other thing is if you're not managing your brewer's yeast well enough during fermentation and and maintaining it but specifically during fermentation so if you've had a beer that smells like rotten eggs as an example that's sulfur offput from um, the brewer's yeast because it's the fermentation temperatures just aren't right or you're not allowing giving it enough time to condition or what have you and i've had beer like that those are that's very different i think from differences in recipe formulation that's just poor brewing practice with your you said golden tickets yeah the the basic yeah much to the chagrin of garrett it has been our top seller since the start he's like and i say chagrin standard lager yeah it's well it's it's a belgian blonde style beer so it's really accessible and it's and i like to think of it as a something that's not going to scare people who aren't haven't tried craft beer but it's still interesting enough that they're going to get some interesting yeast profile on it so when you we can have a conversation when you talk about continuous improvement and you're trying to make that better how much do you retool that and potentially ruin a good recipe or how do you improve something without kind of totally ruining that's a good question i or do you just keep doing the same thing over no no we don't i and i I, 
the brewing Garrett has over has oversight of brewing fundamentally. Like we still work together on um, our brew schedule and some of our QAQC in, in terms of that's a fancy word for drinking beer. Um, but our QAQC and making sure that the the batches are up to what we expect of that batch or or our vision, frankly, of what that beer should be. But he's constantly um, adjusting things like. Uh, uh, his grind on his on his uh, on his mill, or the composition of different hops, or watching his fermentation temperatures, just try to just keep refining. You guys are taking data, taking yeah, notes, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. understanding. I, I think in. I think actually that's probably been one of the one of the biggest stories of our business is the amount of data that we've taken yeah. and tried to analyze. Yeah. Let's go back to life yeah. from. Uh, now you're three years in. Yeah. Uh, looking back at that decision, like. What do you miss and what do you, what's better about life today? Hmm. I, um, I think the big thing I miss is, and this is kind of interesting because as an entrepreneur, you need to really embrace uncertainty, but I miss the stability of uh, a regular paycheck. Yeah. And I, I probably a lot of entrepreneurs would tell you the same thing, but I'd be lying if I didn't think about what I made as a lawyer and what that would, how that would change my, my personal life. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing I'm, I can't remember what the second question is, but what I will say the second question was, is the thing I'm proud of or the thing. Yeah. That, that's what, what's yeah. better today. Yeah. What's what better today. Well, I, I, am really proud of how our vision for this business has manifested mm-hmm. and how we've been able to take care of people and touch their lives, principally our staff. I think that, We've done a reasonably good job at putting people in spots where they're empowered to contribute mm-hmm. um, to the, the legacy and and to put their own stamp on it. And that doesn't mean everybody gets the keys to the car, mm-hmm. um, but it. But I think that we've created a workplace where people um, have enjoyed coming to work and and uh, and we, we pay them well. We we start people and we have from the start have started people at fifteen bucks an hour plus tips. Mm-hmm. They've got benefits. They've got oh, really? um, yeah. They've got sick days. You know, they've got things that we don't have to provide as an employer. But you're still challenged with the HR stuff as well. Like, yeah, yeah, for sure. I think every. I was just chatting with, um, <laughs> just chatting with my aunt that runs a business out in BC, and we were talking about HR tonight. Uh, it, you know, it, I think uh, it's 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 one of the most challenging things to get people to set aside their um, individual interest and pursue the common interest. Yeah, and and that's that's one of the challenging things about HR. The other thing is to help people achieve their potential. And you may not know what their potential is when they come in, and they may have a different idea as to what their potential is. Your job as the leader is to try to uncover what that potential is and then help them achieve it. Mm-hmm. And you probably have the same kind of perspective as we do yeah. that you know it's it's it could be a career for some people, mm-hmm. maybe a few. And it's going to be just like a stepping stone to something bigger and better. And that's that whole potential. Is that, I've, I've changed my perspective on that because I, when we first started, I thought naively that it was a career for everybody. Yeah. And, and probably I think a lot of people do that. Well, you want that because you want yeah. every, you whenever you your first staff, there's so much like love mm-hmm. and kind of family atmosphere with everybody in that, that mm-hmm. first batch of people. And when you, the first one leaves, it's almost like, but how, why would you ever want to well, leave? You, and you take it very personally. personally you start sure. to think that you're doing something wrong as a leader because people are leaving. Not recognizing that this is your life's work mm-hmm. in a lot of ways and it's not for other people. Man, I used to, like, yeah. being at this company for 17 years, the first, I would say, three or four people that left or got let go, 
man, it just hit me like yeah. a ton of bricks. I wasn't ready. I wasn't equipped at a 22 year old to watch like a grown man get fired and yeah. walked out or somebody pick up and leave this company that I thought was so great. But over the course of 17 years, I've probably seen a hundred and some people maybe come and go. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. And now it's like, I'm almost like numb to it. <laughs> like if, yeah, it's yeah. strange. Yeah. Well, you, you kind of have to develop some calluses, unfortunately. And, um, I, I think the things that I've, I mentioned in my practice, I wasn't very good at kind of dealing with conflict and then discarding it, you know, releasing it. Um, I think that some of the tougher decisions I've had to make in, at Nine Mile is when uh, discipline is needed or when you've got to make a decision that um, is the best decision for the organization, mm-hmm. uh, best decision for the other people working in the organization, and probably the best decision for the person, and you have to let somebody go. Yeah. Those are, I, I still churn about those decisions. And yeah. they're long. Does it keep they're you long up at night, knowing the next yeah. day that you got to walk in there? Yeah, for sure it does. It's still, it's still, life. frankly, it still keeps me up at night. Like, it's, I still think about that, just in the same respect that I think about the the uh, files that when I was at the Crown that I screwed up, you know. Yeah. Um, I, and I think it always should, you know. I, I don't want to get to the point where you I'm, I'm, not, I'm not worrying. Because at the end of the day, like, especially when you're starting out and your profit and loss statements are really tight. The easiest line item, the softest line item is your HR spend. It's also your hardest because you're dealing with actual people who are supporting other people or they have certain hopes and dreams by being in your organization. You're trying to figure all of that out and still make the best decision for the organization. That's really tough stuff. And it's hard for you to separate your your person, the the person from that thing because you're Mm -hmm. spending so much time with them. If you're like a... You know, a supervisor, and you have a factory floor of like a hundred guys. Yeah, just numbers. Yeah. It's just numbers. But you're you're hanging out with these people. You're having your Christmas party with them. You're sometimes inviting them to your house. Yeah, and then you got to tell them it's all over. Well, and, and good and good and bad emotion too. Like I, I think there's sometimes that feeling really strong, like strong love for a person will affect your decision. Yeah. Also, being pissed off at them is going to affect your decision. And I think you you have to try to sanitize it all mm-hmm. and just get back to brass tacks and figure out I mean I, I'm proud in a number of circumstances I think I've erred on the side of in the individual at the potential detriment of the organization mm-hmm. because I still saw that potential and wanted to keep going Yeah, and I, I don't know that it was necessarily the right mathematical decision at the time um, but we're still kicking. We gotta live with. We're still decisions. kicking, yeah. right? And and yeah, and I think you're. I think you need to have some latitude to screw those up um, in the right way. So yeah. So now that you're three years in, has anything kind of confirmed along the way that yes, this was the right decision? I should keep going. What are some things that kind of signal you that uh, this is still a good idea, hmm. or have confirmed that you know? I see a lot of potential for our organization. I, I think that, but even in just personally in yourself, yeah, okay. in your mental okay. health, in your in your spirit, yeah, I, I, I do you evaluate every year. Where yeah, I asking? do. I evaluate probably every day in a weird, weird way. Like I, I do a little. Maybe that's overstating it, but I do little temperature checks on it, and I and I think that my wife is probably my best barometer because. I don't know that she would. Um, she's often said because I've, I've, we've talked about it. and I said, you know, I'm, I, I could be providing for our family in a much different way. Um, do you ever it, ask her? Do you yeah. still want me to do this? Yeah, we have we have conversations all the time because it's it's she when she, when, she uh, when we got married, she said she's also she she's like I knew I was marrying Nine Mile too. 
Yeah. You know, the, the, these are all consuming ventures. But so is being a wife of a lawyer. Yeah. And, and I think that um, what she really likes to see and what she hopes that our son will see is seeing that um, personal satisfaction and actualization. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think I, well, I know I, I didn't have the same sort of feeling uh, on that front as a lawyer. As a practicing lawyer. Now, maybe down the road, maybe my, you know, life takes different paths and, and maybe I will find that back in practice. I don't mean to just slag on practice, but this sort of decision allowed me to pursue something that was really meaningful to me um, and continues to be meaningful to me. And I th- also think that we're affecting our community in a really positive way, too. For sure. So I, you know, I, I don't, again, it's, it's kind of like the moments of self-doubt. I don't think there was ever one crystallization moment where, yes, this is the right thing to do. Yeah. It's a constant reassessment, but those sorts of principles are kind of, they, they definitely they're outweighing the tired stress, um, you know, rubbing two nickels together. And you said, you, feelings. And, but you said the satisfaction just generally wasn't there when you were yeah, yeah, it was different. Yeah, but it was satisfied with a specific here. file. Yeah, yeah, I, I did. Um, I am pretty proud of what Garrett and I have been able to do together, mm-hmm. and uh, not not only in building our balance sheet out, but um, creating an organization where people genuinely care about each other and um, having a lasting impact on our community. The funny thing about these sorts of businesses is your story becomes other people's story. Mm-hmm. And so I remember, uh, we've done a, a, uh, a recruitment night at my old firm since we started. And I think they originally did it because they just wanted to give me a hand, which I appreciated. Now they've done it because they realize that we, we do a hell of a job Yeah, and we provide a great event for these prospective employees. Um, and in those early years, the students would come up to me to talk, and they'd be excited because they wanted to talk to the lawyer that quit before he became a partner well, and you're tried not, something different. Yeah, you're some sort of legend. Yeah, well, and that, but that was the early days, right? Now they're excited to talk to me because I'm the Nine Mile founder. Yeah. And uh, this one kid came up to me last year, and he was really excited to talk to me about Nine Mile. He said because, you know, he first started drinking Nine Mile a couple of years ago. And he, um, it was, it was a beer that they had when you helped their, the buddies move. Mm-hmm. So the buddies would go out and get the good beer in his words, um, and, uh, and treat the, the guys who helped them move. And he said, you know what? I met my fiance at one of those parties and, uh, you know, we, we love to have nine mile together. And now this it's, it's what you're doing. And it's kind of a, there's a, a hefty responsibility with the whole thing because what you're doing is a meaningful part of their life. Right. In a way that you can't control. Yeah. Right. That's pretty wild. No, that is wild. You, know. With, you think about you just personally, Sean, mm-hmm. um, do you ever think about uh, what nine miles done personally for you in the sense of like, you could have just, no offense, you could have been just yeah. been like white guy, Sean, lawyer, suit yeah. amongst all the other lawyers. Yeah. But now you're kind of like, you have some sort of profile in the city and you are like a I don't know if I totally almost. like. I don't know if I think Have about you that it at all. I don't know if I think about it to be honest with you. But it, people like know that you're the founder of Nine Mile. Yeah. People know this sort of brand. It's kind people of like rec- people recognize us, and it's kind of one weird. of the brands that's kind of the torch for a lot of the other brands in the city. I think for you know following you to what's new and trendy. And we were talking mm-hmm. earlier that your brand is trendy, but now that there's there's other competition in the in the neighborhood and how to stay relevant. But yeah. you are still kind of the grandfather of a lot of the kind of newer brands i know that there's other breweries that have been before yeah, you yeah no I, I think we i think we 
But you're more the face than I would say Garrett. In this yeah, episode. it's in- interesting. I, I um, it's kind of in the early days that was that was very much how it was. Um, Garrett is as the brewmaster. Some people would rather talk to the brewmaster, mm-hmm. and some interviews would rather be had with the brewmaster. And he's developed his own profile Persona, yeah. in his own in his own way, which has really been awesome to see that develop. He he actually gave our first media interview when we opened up. Oh yeah. So it was I was working at a at a mining company and I couldn't get away um, for the interview. It was Bob Simpson on CTV oh, and yeah. Garrett at the time was brewing like hell to try to get us open in April. And he had decided not to cut his hair or his beard until we opened. So he was this like mad scientist, shaggy mess. And it was like a very much like the recluse giving the interview is, is like a delivery style. Ted Kaczynski coming out. Yeah, he was on CTV last week about this new strain of barley and just like a total home run of an interview just like really exuded what we are and, and talk about the intelligence and sophistication yeah but also fun you know and, yeah. and it was I, I thought it was I, just to see that development's been wild I, I think it's been um, it might just be the the virtue by virtue of how big we are as an org, as, as a as a city that small business owners have a lot of profile. Like we, we wouldn't have that. Profile but it's not that you could be like a drilling, yeah. you know, maintenance person. But like yeah. because it's beer, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you have this great. If we were like making widgets, to, no one would care. And you're on 20th, it really happened in street. Mm-hmm. I think that by nature you're just going to have this sort of profile, and you've been profiling yeah, lots of that. different media too. But mm-hmm. do you, do you like old Sean or do you like new Sean? No, I'm, I'm way more comfortable with who I am. Like right I, now. I didn't yeah. know old Sean, so like, would, were you suit and tie guy? Yeah, I you look like Steve Irwin right now. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Steve Irwin. Yeah, um, I, uh, I. I think I probably have to shave this mustache. It's not really working. <laughs> but you had a ponytail when I first. Yeah, had a ponytail. Was, I, was that? Was I that? have never had facial hair before Nine Mile, and I've, I've not, I can't grow a lot of facial hair. So I'm kind of a laughing stock in the brewing industry because it's really Man, a, a goatee. To, like this a, is, yeah. I've had this since high school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, I mean, it's. I've just. I don't know. I think. On this crazy road of life, I've just become more comfortable with who I am, and this is who I am. You know, at the end of the day, it's I wasn't. I felt I had to fit within a certain box and wear the suits and cut the hair short and shave and act a certain way. I, you know, I remember I was never really that happy with courtroom Sean. There was a very big difference. Yeah, I I could turn it on, and I was reasonably good. Mm -hmm. And um, but I knew that I was like. I, that was a certain persona, and I really had to get myself psyched up to do that. Were you, do you identify as a lawyer still, or do you identify more as a brewer? I'm, st- I'm actually coming around to it and being a little bit more. Um, I, in the early days, I would, I was, I was when I made the decision to leave, and I think psychologically you have to do this. Just I'm no longer a lawyer. I'm mm-hmm. negative about that whole experience, and I was actually angry about it in a lot of ways um, mm-hmm. for reasons that weren't, you know, um, justified or realistic. Now I'm actually pretty proud of that background. It's I think it's really contributed to how we develop as a business. Um, but I also don't know if I'm employable right now. Oh man, <laughs> I was just thinking as you're talking yeah. about uh, just talking to your wife and saying, "Hey, yeah. honey, I could I could totally have this different career and provide more." Like if you quit and folded everything, you think that like you could be in-house counsel to like Molson or um, yeah, Anheuser Busch. You I could though. I don't know though. I, I honestly do don't. You still know. have a license to practice. I'm I'm inactive right now and just but you just have to yeah, apply, right? Yeah, pay the money and you can you can be active again. Um, I uh, yeah. But you could be. Imagine how interesting the story is. The 
Yeah, I mean, from a strict practice perspective, like if I was to step back into my old job, I'm pretty rusty. No, but, but I think so, so there's that. I I don't uh, I don't disagree with you that the business experience has changed my perspective on a lot of things that I think could be really valuable. You can be an executive at one of those yeah. big breweries. I also am not certain that I would be a good employee now. Oh yeah, you know because just because I've I've had to answer to a lot of stakeholders, but at the end of the day, like Garrett and I. Um, Manage, manage things in concert. Um, but, you know, there's certain areas that I have authority over, and I make the decision. Yeah. That would be really hard, too. Um, and I don't know if anybody would want that. 20 years ago, our two bosses have this awesome story how they yeah. almost started. They almost joined this conglomerate of <laughs> media companies, like video, yeah. TV production, and graphic design. And they were the digital guys. And they were about to move into the Jacks building right across the street. And they amalgamated. It was going to be called this new name. And Zoo was only about three or four years old. And Tony, they just started feeling ill to know that they were going to be working for somebody rather than being their own boss. Yeah. And, they, and Tony also, they did some research and realized the person that they're potentially going to work for was kind of a phony. So in the middle of the nights, they stole all the computers out. And, it, and then they moved into Tony's basement. This is part of the Zoo lore. Everybody has yeah. this like sort of big legend story that uh, and everybody knows that that they just went into the basement worked for a year in Tony's basement and that person ended up being s- sniffed out as like an actual like phony and so they okay. they made the right choice but he talked about the idea of working for somebody else after you've been an entrepreneur for so long uh, yeah I can imagine how tough that would be <laughs> I don't know what it feels like to be a true entrepreneur where I'm like the ultimate boss uh, I've been here for 17 years and there's yeah. still like pretty much half the company tells me what to do every day so <laughs> I, Garrett and I have talked about our decision to start Nine Mile on occasion. And for me, I wanted to start a business. I wanted to be a business owner. It didn't and matter I, about the beer? Uh, well, I, the beer was the, the catalyst that where it made sense for me to pursue something. But right. generally speaking, I wanted, to, I wanted, I wanted to, to try my hand at this. Whereas for Garrett, it was all about the beer. He, and he's told me if it wasn't beer, I wouldn't have done it. Yeah. You know, and, and so he's the brewer, right? Like well, it makes, it makes, it makes sense. a lot of sense. Yeah. But, you know, some people, I yeah. find that it's good to be honest about, you know, you know, you're trying to offer something genuine and authentic, but at the same time, you're still trying to run a business. And it's always funny when you see like a, a restaurant come up and they have this sort of like, we want to give honest Italian. The reason we started this business yeah. is to give, is to bring genuine ingredients to the people. And then like six months later, they start looking at the books and they flip the restaurant to like a sports bar. <laughs> and you're like, oh, yeah. so much for the uh, authentic <laughs> recipe idea. Yeah. You know, sometimes you get pushed into a corner or the or- whole organic thing and like farm to table. When you start seeing the numbers slide, you might end up buying a tomato from the corner store. That I, don't, I don't think I, I don't think I realized this when we got going, how hard this was going to be. And, and it was really like just making it work yeah. and, and making sure that, because it, yeah, it's easy to sell beer, but it's really hard to manage your expenses. And it's really hard to uh, make sure that you're setting your price point at the right spot so that you can keep the lights on. Yeah. And it takes a, there's a, I got a lot of tire tracks on my back on the, for the lessons that I've learned over the years. Yeah. Well, man, yeah. what business, like, think about it. What business that we think started right away and it wasn't a lot of work. Like yeah. talking to most entrepreneurs now that you're part of this club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody talks about the amount of work and the yeah. sacrifices they made. Yeah, and and I th- and you have to make smart decisions along the way, but what is ultimately results in your survival is are you prepared to eat more of the shit sandwich? And and at some point everybody has their own spot where they're not prepared to do that anymore. Yeah. That's okay. Um but y- you just have to like it's it's a constant um, lesson in self-doubt and personal improvement 
and uh, risk embracing. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you lose the appetite for that. But so, do you ever yeah. crave being a lawyer? Or like, were you ever obsessed about the in- industry? No, 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 not. Uh, Did you ever watch a lot prof- of lawyer movies? I hate lawyer movies. I hate lawyer books. Before I went to law school, I, I really enjoyed John Grisham. Can't stand it. Um, before I, uh, yeah, I, I used to like Law and Order, the old Jack McCoy Law yeah. and Order. Oh yeah, can't stand it. Like, really? it, they, well, they get it all wrong, right? And it's man, I just yeah. watched the firm, and I just finished it last night. <laughs> yeah, you know, talking about the top yeah, 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 yeah. the offshore yeah. stuff. That was my favorite Grisham book at the yeah. Time. And man, that movie, yeah. like, I was like totally. I knew about it for 20 mm-hmm. years, and I just said, I don't know why, out of all the movies that are available, I just said, I'm going to watch The Firm, because it's two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. And, man, that movie, it rocked my socks off. It was so good. Yeah, I mean, gripping stuff. It's awesome. You <laughs> know, but I, and I, I just have a hard time, like, sitting back and, and not... Because now you know how the sandwiches, or the, the... Yeah, the sausage is made. How the sausage is made, yeah. yeah. And so all that stuff is good for I, me. I will say, I really like Better Call Saul. Really, really like better. That's console. one of my favorite TV shows. Yeah, and I, I just, I really, I really like Odenkirk. The, I think he's just a master at what he does. He's a genius. Yeah, he has an ability to be affable, yeah. but at the same time, like you can, you understand why people would hate him. Yeah, and he's trying to do the right thing, but he's. But it's a, a different. It's a different take than like yeah. say Suits or like just. And, and it's also not very much lawyering. Like there's no, there's the it's that's it's the setting story. for it, but it's a human story. And so, yeah, and just watching yeah. like the the ambulance chasing type of guys, but he's yeah. I love no. I think that's just one of the best shows on TV. I really enjoyed like in terms of crime because that's the other one. Because of my time with the Crown, I really don't have a lot of time for like uh, criminal type shows. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really like I really liked Homicide, Life on the Street, and and The Wire both. You know, yeah, I, Homicide, I, Life on the Street. Yeah. That's a throwback to the nineties. Yeah, it's a great good. show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, no, I don't I don't miss it. I I um, what I found when I was going to law school and and. I try to tell law students this too, that I was interested in a whole bunch of different things. And when you go to law school, they tell you that you, um, your degree opens up so many doors and has so many different applications and so much potential. But the way the profession organizes itself is they want you to specialize and lock in with partnership and really limit your opportunities. And so I really drank the Kool-Aid when I was in uh, uh, college where, um, I had all of these opportunities and I started thinking about being entrepreneurial and doing policy work and doing foreign affairs work and all of this various stuff. Mm -hmm. And then it came time to go and practice and it just, I found it was so far too narrow. Yeah. So I try to tell students to make sure that you're getting as many different experiences as you you can and to hold your nose a bit on the naysayers. If you're jump, I jumped around from civil litigation to criminal prosecutions, to academia, back to criminal prosecutions, to commercial work. I did a lot of different things and you can do that, but you have to be very deliberate about it and you have to kind of, but I think everybody's the common feeling knowledge. so pressured to try to just settle out, uh, pay pick, your loans, and, and there's peer pressure too. Yeah, I mean, it, there is definitely. Um, it was a big decision for me to decide uh, to not be a lawyer in this respect. Uh, there is a certain cachet that comes with being a lawyer and telling people that you're a lawyer, and I don't do that anymore. Yeah, and I think that's probably what holds. I've got a number of colleagues who would rather not be doing what they're doing. And I think it's not so much the money because you don't need that much money to live. Um, I don't think it's necessarily, um, I'm not even sure it's necessarily the so-called social status or prestige, but you've invested so much into this identity as a lawyer that it has personal cachet for you. And there's a mental block when you finally say, I'm not doing this anymore. Hmm. Yeah. 
and to drop that as an, as an identifier for yourself yeah. too. So you have to then figure out who you are and that's really true. So I'm a brewer now and I've, I've you know, I've, and a business leader. And so that's how you identify. Yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how you're so unsettled in your twenties. Eh? Yeah. Like, yeah, I, I did all of this in my thirties, best decade of my life. Yeah. It's yeah. funny that when you're 20, you just feel the pressure that you have to just get everything settled. Cause everybody's it trying might be to a Southwest thing. I don't think that exists in other places. Yeah. Well, especially in a bigger city. Yeah. Like people are well into just like an unsettledness into their forties. But mm-hmm. here in Saskatchewan, yeah, you see, that's why people get married, have kids and everything. And it kind of puts pressure on if all your friends are doing it. Mm-hmm. But then when you hit 30, I think, you realize that, holy man, like I didn't have to do the formula. I didn't have to have the order operations down from marriage, kids, job, all that sort of thing. And no, that's right. That's right. I, I definitely, I definitely was off to the races in my twenties and I'm grateful for it because it allowed me to gain a lot of really good skills before I did something like this. If I had done this in my twenties, it would have yeah. failed. So now that you're yeah. settled, so to speak, you know, yeah. there's still always an unknown going yeah. down in the next few years, <laughs> but, uh, What's next for Nine Mile? Or I, you personally? Well, I mean, I am pretty content in my personal life. I think I'll, you know, I've starting a business kind of presses pauses on a few things. I will buy a house uh, in the next little while, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife's starting her career, and it's going to be awesome to support her in doing that. She's a social worker. Oh, nice. And uh, she's uh, a powerhouse. She um, was pregnant with Pierce, was finishing her degree, graduated with distinction, then did her practicum at RUH, and then 10 days later, after she was done her practicum, Pierce arrives. So she's just like a legend, and she's going back to work now, and it's really going to be awesome to like be a dad and support that side of it. So I'm really looking forward to... I'm a terrified in the sense of how do you mind meld the being the leader of a small business um, and taking it to the next steps and being a present dad and, and yeah, supportive husband. Sure. It's going to be very challenging, um, but it's going to be fun to have the opportunity to do that. Um, from a business perspective, we see a lot of opportunity, and um, I think that we'll have to get our heads around expanding again very shortly. We're going to hit capacity this year, um, and so where where do we need to take this thing? Where are you putting thing? most of the energy? Into cans? Uh, well, I think packaged product, whether that's cans or bottles. We bottle right now, and I think that that's been a really awesome and creative way to present our product. It has some limitations. Like, uh, I don't think that people would necessarily take our bottles if they were going camping just because they're a little more cumbersome. They might take one or two. Uh, so I think we'll add a can component at some point. But the future for us is definitely in in making sure that, yeah, making sure that we're we're getting our beer to the people that want it in, a, in as controlled a way as possible so that it is fresh and it is um, exactly how we want to present it in the taproom. So if you're canning, would you outsource that? Is that what happens? You- no, I think we would invest in equipment. In equipment yeah. to, is it expensive? Yeah, to- it's it's a... Yeah. Uh, couple hundred thousand dollars oh really yeah okay so that's uh, something that you have to really decide on then eh? yeah 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 but it's you know at, at the end of the day it's the, that's the business we're in it's a cash hungry industry so you're constantly buying tanks and buying kegs and buying but imagine if you just had the ability to can like how much would that open up right and and that exists that's something we might consider there are breweries that are contract brewing at other breweries and mm-hmm. so it's essentially going in with your recipe brewing the beer and canning it and so oh, so you, you don't can... just bring a giant barrel on a back of a truck i had no idea how that would no, no. So there's kind of principally two ways that if you don't have a production brewery, you can can the beer. One is to take the recipe into the brewery and, and so hire the brewery to make it. Okay. The other is to produce it at your facility, but have somebody arrive with a canning line. 
and can on site with this mobile canning unit. And that exists too, and there's breweries that are doing it. So would you buy a mobile canning unit? No, we would buy, I think we would just buy a proper canning unit. We've, we've toyed with the mobile canning units, uh, getting them in. I, for us, the issue is always quality. And I, I'm not saying that you're not going to get quality. There's a lot of breweries that use those setups, but you just, we just don't control the process in yeah. the way that we would want to. So we would need a lot of assurance. And I, I think, you know, if I may say, I think we've done quality very well. So um, I don't want to do anything that would interrupt that. Yeah. And in the same way with, with uh, going into a different brewery and, and scaling up that way, it might work. You know, it might work really well. We'd have to, and it's and it's definitely a model that we're not discounting as we decide our next expansion plans. But the ideal would be to have another space with a larger brewery and a canning line. Okay, so where can we find Nine Mile? Just to give you guys a final plug, where can we find it in Saskatchewan? The best spot, the best spot if you're in Saskatoon is at the brewery um, on Twentieth Street. Does it make that big of a difference? I, I just versus a restaurant. Can you tell there's no, any difference? No, we've got lots of good retail partners that are poor good pints. Um, but I think that we sell more than beer. I think we sell a certain experience. And I think to have the full nine mile experience where the and records have explain what's going yeah, on. Yeah, the records play and you're dealing with our great staff. They're very passionate about what they're doing. You're you're having the beer as fresh as it can be and you're interacting with the people that are down in Riversdale, you know, whether it's Leonard telling you what the weather is or mm-hmm. or what have you, I think come to the brewery. If you can't make it to the brewery, we're in about 40 different restaurants around town. Um, I'm not going to name them because I'm going to miss some. I used to but be able to just rattle them off. But 40, that's quite yeah. a bit. Is that yeah. Saskatchewan or just in Saskatoon? Saskatoon. Are you in, you're in around the province though, aren't you? Well, we're starting to be. I mean, for a long time, our only account was my favorite account, the Cabri Hotel. When we started <laughs> bottling, Wendy uh, to, Wendy carried our bottles at the Cabri Hotel. It was awesome to have our beer down at our, in our hometown. Uh, we now, our bottles are starting to reach a little bit more. And I think this is really what has um, really signaled where the potential is. Uh, you, you can get us at the co-op and uh, Metro Liquor and Sobeys in town for our bottles. Um, we're now at the PA co-op and at Elkridge. So we're starting to go into the north a little bit. Okay. And um, that's really fun to bring good quality craft beer. But uh, slow expansion is kind of the way to do it. That's kind of how we've been. We'll never be accused of being too aggressive, yeah. for sure. But that's kind of how we're wired. And I think that is hearkening back to the Southwest values. I, our family's homesteaded. You know, and they slowly added land. We weren't, we were never the farmers that went and bought a whole bunch of land and risked it. You know, we're we're more about slow accumulation, and I think that that leads to good it's foundation. In the DNA. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, Sean Mullen yeah. from Nine Mile, I want to just say thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you. This was fun, and I think we should do this again and talk about what some other existential things that that's right, are yeah. on our mind. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyways, thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Albert.